The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no voice nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God, as we meditate on this psalm together this morning, we pray that we would be encouraged by you, our God, who has made himself known to us. May we know you more through spending time in this psalm together this morning, and may we rejoice in who you are to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are, of course, looking at Psalm 19 for our sermon this morning. Now, you might be wondering why we aren't doing another sermon on Mark's Gospel. We've been working through that quite consistently since about uh, the end of January. It's been a long time. Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, Part of that is the week I've had, and I've found a lot of comfort being in the Psalms, and this is one of the Psalms that's been very helpful for me this week. Uh, Another reason is that when we're going to get to the last two verses of chapter 9 of Mark, there's some things there about being salt to the world that really underscore what Mark goes on to to write about in chapter 10, up to about verse 45. So I'd like to try and keep those things as close together as possible, and going away on holidays next week, that sort of throws that plan out of the water a little bit. I could say, please just remember what we saw previously, but that can be hard. In fact, uh, I was at a church once on staff while I was studying for ministry, Uh, Two other pastors there. We had to move our staff meeting from Thursday to Tuesday. Part of the staff meeting was to review the sermons from the weekend. And unless we're taking very detailed notes, we couldn't quite remember what the other guys had said in great detail by the time Thursday rolled around. So I'm not going to have unrealistic expectations. But why this psalm though? Well, this psalm I've also chosen this morning because whether it's been explicit or referring to it in more of a vague capacity... I've spoken about this psalm in four of our last five sermons. It's it's come up. It's related to the things we've been going through in Mark's Gospel. I thought this is a good place for us to be this morning as a church. Now, before we go too far into diving into the psalm, uh, I want to share a note of some caution when it comes to analysing the psalms. Uh, Sometimes when we study God's Word together, we can fall into a very analytical mindset And we need to go deep. We need to see what these words mean and get as much meaning out of them as possible. 
But I'd like to use words of C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. C.S. Lewis, of course, a very famous uh, Christian novelist. He wrote some theological books as well. His theological books aren't fantastic. The novels are great theologically. doesn't quite get there with his exegesis. But in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he says this very, very helpful thing. Analysis can never substitute for the poem. The best analysis can do is to prepare the reader to enter the poem more perceptively. The concern of poetry is not to arrive at a definition and to close a book, but to arrive at an experience. So we don't want to overanalyze. We want to analyze, but not overanalyze the psalm today. And we want to still see the beauty of the poetry that's before us. As we look at this psalm, it's wonderful. It's amazing. David, the author of this psalm, teaches us about God's ultimate kingship, the sovereignty of God over all things by combining two themes, both creation and the law, to make his point. We're going to deal with these in in turn. So we do actually have points this morning in our sermon. It's a bit of a blast from the past, isn't it? Three points. First, we're going to see God in creation. Secondly, God in the law. And then thirdly, God as our help. So... Looking at God in creation. We live in a world that is marred, tainted, corrupted by sin. If we look at the book of Romans, particularly in chapter 8, which we've spent some time in our Bible studies recently, we read that creation groans under the weight of sin. Perhaps when we look at the world around us, maybe when we've spent too long listening to news cycles, those sorts of things, we have a negative attitude that we can project onto the world around us. And we go, well, that would be great, but there's decay there. That would be fantastic, but there's death and corruption over there. We live in a world that is marred by sin. But what the author of this Psalm, David, does is he reminds us of a truth we need to be reminded of, that despite all of that brokenness and the effect of sin in the world, God is evident through the handiwork of his creation. This is a base level presupposition that David and all Christians need to have, but it's worth seeing what this means. And really, we're talking about general revelation of God here before we move to specific revelation in God's word. When David points us to creation to declare God's glory, there's a number of ways that he could do this. We think sometimes when we talk about God being seen in creation of the, the big ticket items in creation, we think of the power of a volcano erupting and that God is greater than that. We think of the force of the oceans and the, the might of God to create these things. Perhaps we look at these unique events that happen very rarely. Perhaps Halley's Comet that comes once every 70 years, almost right on the money every single time. 70 years and it comes again. Maybe we think a little bit smaller and we think of, say, a dragonfly and the rate at which those wings go. Amazing stuff. I was, if I had time to prepare a children's talk, we would have spoken about Pele's lava hair. This isn't Pele the soccer player. It's this volcanic residue left over, uh, vol- volcanic lava that cools in such a way that it actually looks like human hair. When we think of things in creation that are astounding and go, there's got to be more there, Perhaps we go to these unique, one-off, astounding events. We could do that. These things really help us appreciate that there is a God, there is a creator more. 
But David keeps it much simpler than that. David starts off by saying the heavens, the skies, they declare the glory of God. Every single day in this world we live in, we see in the sky enough to declare the glories of God. The heavens declare the glories of God. Every single day this is the case. Verse 2, David goes on to say that that day pours out speech and night reveals knowledge. We're building this picture here of a God who is making himself known through the thing that he has made. God is not a distant, vague, hidden person. He clearly shows all people who have, will and do live on earth that he is sovereign, that he is real and that he is knowable. He is a God who is knowable across the whole earth. The revelation of God through creation was not limited to David's time as king over Israel or perhaps when he was on the run when he wrote this. God's revelation of himself began with the creation of the world and continued even when the new heavens and the new earth are put into place. And some of us might question this though. How evident is God really through creation? That just sounds like a nice thing that you could say. Give us more to back this up. And almost as if David is anticipating responses like this, he begins to talk about some specific things within creation. And he talks about the sun. He talks about the sun. The sun, this big, giant, burning ball up in the skies, this thing that nothing on the earth can escape. We can try and hide from the sun but that's not living a very healthy life the sun is a reality the sun is used in this psalm as irrefutable proof from within creation that God is real now David uses language here which if you do go and uh, dive deeper into this and look at commentaries now I say David seems to be drawing language from ancient Near East mythology to talk about the sun here And something that happened then, using that language at the time, was often the sun became the object of worship. David doesn't head down that path. He's using language that people would be familiar with. And he makes it very clear that the sun is not to be worshipped, but the sun points us to the thing that should be worshipped, the one who should be worshipped, and that is God. And it's a strong, powerful, and if you're as fair-skinned as I am, dangerous witness as to God. He exists. He is there. David doesn't say, look at the sun and worship the sun. He said, look at the sun. You know how powerful that is. You know you can't escape the heat of the sun. Even that powerful thing up in the sky, it doesn't do what it wants to do. It runs the course that God has set for it. The sun coming forth like a bridegroom from his chamber like a strong man preparing to run his race, the images of strength in the prime of life. Yet even still, the sun does what God has intended for it to do. Its rising is from one end of the heaven to the other. Its circuit is from one end of the earth to the other and back again, and nothing is hidden from its heat. Even those of us who try to hide from the heat of the sun will still find ourselves very shortly wanting the fans and the aircon turned on, won't we?
the sun follows the course set for us as powerful as the sun is. It can't do its own thing. It follows the course God has set for it. In these first six verses here, these first six beautiful, amazing verses where David takes a big picture view of creation. David is saying God can be seen through creation. You think of the most powerful thing in creation, there is someone more powerful than even that thing. He's getting us to think, how did that get there? It's not by accident there is a creator who made all of creation. And then, then we get to verse 7, and we shift gears fairly quickly. This is where the second of the two major themes, the law, particularly God's law, and David is most likely referencing the, the Torah when he speaks of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, for us today, we might not necessarily think of creation and the law as being things that go hand in hand together. Uh, critics of the, the Bible, high critics who try and find faults with all sorts of things say, you know what, this is actually two separate psalms. Verse 1 to 6 is one psalm. Verse 7 through 14, that's another psalm. We should treat it as that because David's just, he's swapping gears too quickly for this to be the case. Other theologians who I agree with, like Keel and Delich, argue that this psalm is a complete body that works together. David is using two themes here, creation and the Lord, that are so closely interwoven that they cannot be separated when it comes to the revelation of God. We can't ignore these things. We can't separate them out for one another. In the same way that nothing can escape the heat of the sun, David uses something else which is completely unavoidable, and that is God's law. He uses God's law. In the same way, nothing can escape the heat of the sun. God's law is all-piercing. We cannot successfully evade God's law. We cannot reach any place on earth where we escape the reach of God's law. And while there may be times where we have to wait and see justice delivered, there is no way that men can escape the law forever. We will all give an account for how we live before God's judgment seat. Now, having said that, perhaps it's very easy to consider the law and just in the culture we live in, whether that's going back to our uh, so often criminal backgrounds for many of us with the convicts coming over on the first fleet. Perhaps we think of the law as an oppressive thing of condemnation. David takes a very, very different take on the law here. This is David who has failed many times in his life. David who knows the consequences of not keeping the law. David who takes a different approach on the law. But yeah, it's all piercing. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. But see what, God, what David says about God's law in verse 7. It converts our soul. Now the word there in the Hebrew is mishpat. Perhaps we would translate as uh, other than convert, we could use restore or revive. There's a life to be found in God's law. It converts our souls and we know as Christians that's what we need. David from verse 7, as soon as he introduces the law, he says, the law is not this nasty thing that's out to get you with people behind riot shields just coming after you all the time. He says the law can make us better. The law converts our souls, revives, restores our souls. The law makes us wise. 
David's saying here is that in no other place in God's word can we find wisdom. In no other place in God's word can we find wisdom because God's word is the clearest revelation of wisdom to us. In the law, God reveals not only his will but also his nature to us. Last week I said I struggled a little bit with poetry. I'm going to use a poetic term here. Parallelism. I'm very proud of myself right now. Parallelism is a tool used by David in verse 7 and 8 to further this point where these two things work side by side to continue to make the point that he is making. In these two verses, verses 7 and 8, David says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The first two lines of verse 7 and verse 8 line up. The second two lines of verse 7 and verse 8 line up. They work together, showing us the joy, the life found in the law. And it also shows us the wisdom found in keeping God's law. And we should expect that given that this is from God. As we look at those things, look at those verses, David is driving us towards a a, a shared experience, some would say, through this poem, through this psalm. And that shared experience is to praise God. You look at the first six verses of the psalm, through creation, see what God has made. Acknowledge that there is a creator, praise God. We look at these verses, verses 7 and 8. See what God's law has done for you, praise him. Praise him, rejoice in him. Your heart is now alive because of the law. There are so many positives to obedience to God's law that we simply should just obey. And we should obey the Lord, David goes on to say, fearing God. Not fearing God as if he is some evil dictator who gives us no choice but to obey where our lives will be over, but fear God with reverence. It is acknowledging God as holy and pure and upright. Acknowledging that this is God who, as we see in his law, he he cannot stand sin. His standard is good and right and proper. Fear of the Lord, David tells us it's not a bad thing, it's a clean thing. The reason we read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8 before is particularly verses 6 through 8. Paul really works on the idea of living in cleanness and growing in holiness as God sanctifies us, continues to sanctify us. David's basically saying the same thing here. This reverence of God, this obedience to the law, it grows us in ways where we actually have life and can actually enjoy the life that God has given us. We're given not only insight as to God's nature, but instruction on how to live the way the Creator wants us to live through the law. God does not want us to enjoy the filth and the death and the decay that sin has to offer. God wants us to live cleanly to grow, to thrive. 
And our response to this should be to show reverence to him. The law is good. The law is serious. We see the consequences for breaking the law are horrendous. We saw that in Mark's gospel last week. The consequences for sin, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out of your hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's serious. There's eternal things on the line here. But the law has been given to us for good and it should be kept. We shouldn't just look at God's law and think, well, that was a nice document to read and move on. We should keep coming back to it. David talks about the desirability, the richness of it. If you have riches, you try and enjoy those riches, don't you? And this is more valuable than the purest of gold. This is more, more sweet, more precious to us in sustaining us than honey, sweeter even than honeycomb. When we look at the laws God has given us, we can see him. And we can begin to know him through his law. The law reflects God's good and perfect and upright nature. And as David goes on, he shows us that it really does necessitate a response as we consider these things. We, we all have a conscience. Some of us are a little bit better at listening to our consciences than others at times, aren't we? But we all have consciences. And they confirm that God's laws are right and proper and to be obeyed. But in this, don't forget verses 7 and 8, the conversion of our souls, the reviving, the restoration of our souls, and the rejoicing of our hearts in verse 8. As we obey God's law, it's not just a, a burden placed upon us, it is a joy to live according to how God has asked us to live, how he commands us to live the law revives, restores, it converts our souls. And finally, this morning, we see God as our help. Now, as we've been working through this psalm, I really hope we haven't butchered it. I really hope you're still enjoying this psalm and can still enjoy this psalm after this morning. Now, as we keep working through this, and I have been working through it, we're exposed to something David would have experienced. He knows the glory of God. We see the undeniable existence of the only one who made us. Not only is God real, what we see in creation, Lord God is, is knowable. He is powerful. His majesty, his glory, his dominion, his attributes are being made known to us through creation and the law, through general and specific revelation. After going through all of this, David gets to verse 12 and seems to be asking, well, if that's God, how do I, how do I line up with that? He realizes pretty quickly that he doesn't match up to God. That no one can. Who can understand his errors? David's not asking this question expecting someone to say, oh, Billy over there, he, he knows all of his errors. It's a question to make us realize that actually none of us can know all of our errors. Very quickly we realize that we just have blind spots, that there are sins in our lives that will be hidden from us. The reason for that can be many and varied. As we saw last week, it could be loving ourselves more than God. It could come from pride. It can come from all sorts of places. David is perfectly correct here that we just can't understand all of our errors. 
There is just so many ways we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay. So what we're left with there is God who is holy and just and pure and all-powerful and almighty and without compare from anything in creation, a God who, if we break his law, has a power to condemn us eternally. And David says, well, none of us can know our hearts. Where do we go with that? None of us can discern all of our errors. If we try and sort ourselves out, we're always going to have problems unresolved in our lives. That's not a particularly joyful point to reach. David knows that he's going to struggle. So what David does in the next line of verse 12, it says, who can understand his errors? If we left there, it's hopelessness. But the next line, David says, cleanse me from secret faults. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. David asks God for help. This is David who is a king. Demonstrating the humility to say, I don't have the ability to do this on my own. I have a great treasury. I have a great army. I have many advisors, but none of that is sufficient. God, I need your help. Keep me clear from presumptuous sins. Make me clean, O oh God. I want to be innocent and I know that you can make me innocent of great transgression, O oh God. This is what David is saying in those verses there. The only way that we can be seen as innocent before the judgment seat of our great God is for God to have perfect dominion in our lives. He is the king of all creation. He is, by nature of that statement, our king, whether we like it or not, he has dominion over all things. We're left with choices here. We could go down the, a different path than David and say, well, I've been equipped with X, Y, or Z. I have a family who love me. I have friends who support me. With all of that in mind, I can take on this problem of sin myself. I have enough to get myself over the line. Maybe we don't even think of our friends and family there. Maybe we just think, well, I can sort this out just on my own. But David says, no, that's not going to work. That is not good enough. We can try and rule our lives as we would like to rule them and find ourselves guilty of great transgression or we can turn to God and say, cleanse us that I might be innocent of transgression. These laws are good. Our pride gets in the way of seeing them as good sometimes. But the lesson is to prayerfully humble ourselves before God and ask, as David did, that his work, not our efforts, dismal, feeble efforts, be what make us innocent. Now, right at the start, I said we wanted to get to an experience that the psalmist, that David, who wrote this psalm, is trying to convey. Verse 14 is the sum of that. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, 
my strength and my redeemer. Now, some translations say my, say my rock and my redeemer is that last line. This is what David wants people to have with God. Total and utter dependence on him. Despite our comings, the law is still a hopeful thing for us because we look to the one who did keep it perfectly. Jesus Christ, who we've been following through Mark's gospel, is the one we must trust for him. It is him we depend on for the restoration of our souls because he kept God's law for us. As a result of that, as a result of all of those wonderful blessings of being owned by God given to us, David knows that the meditations of our heart, where once they were nothing but filthy rags before God, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the meditations of our heart can be acceptable to God. This means that they need to be in accordance with God's word. Are we meditating on God's word? Are we meditating on the things of God? Are we meditating on, I've got this appointment in the morning, followed by that? followed this by the bill to pay, followed by picking the kids up from school, followed by the, the soccer run, whatever it might be. And those dominating our minds, or are we going to God's word? Are we meditating more on God's word than anything else? We do need humility before God. We see his power, his might, his majesty through creation. We see his justice through the law, his holiness there. Is it God who wants his people to be clean and pure and upright. To do this, we have to be so centred on God and his word that we can, and by God's grace, every single professing Christian can do this. We can say with the same confidence that David said that God is our rock and that God is our redeemer. God and God alone can declare us innocent. God provided the means of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Ask him that he would keep refining us so that along with the unavoidable truths in creation, that along with the law that's been placed on the hearts of every single person revealed so clearly in God's word, that we, as Christians, as people who love God, that we can also be witnesses and bear testimony to the love, the righteousness, the holiness and the mercy of God our Father to his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. There is so much more to dive into. There is so much more richness to be seen there. Yet we thank you that through this psalm, David makes it abundantly clear to us that you have revealed yourself to us. We rejoice in knowing that you are a God who is known to us. We thank you for this. And we pray that what we have learnt of you, now further meditation on this psalm and other scriptures through today and the rest of the week, would not just grow our knowledge of you, but may they shape the way we live that we might give you glory and honour and praise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.